Well, today is the first day of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, but I think you all know that already. And um, as I started deciding, should I teach on Sukkot or continue with Nehemiah? I just started looking through some passages on Sukkot and started learning things I never had seen before. And so it became pretty clear what I should talk about. So I call this, this uh, teaching, Sukkot, a celebration of victory. Uh, it had a lot of other names I was working through. I thought I could call it, and I wrote some of them down. Uh, Sukkot, God's goal for mankind. Another was Sukkot, our final destination. Sukkot, return to the garden. And it, then it started deteriorating from there to Sukkot, pull up your socks and move forward. And <laughs> Sukkot, quit whining. And uh, Sukkot, don't be stupid, but it it just went downhill from there. Honestly, as I was thinking, you could take every teaching I've ever done and just entitle it, don't be stupid. Because isn't that what the entire Bible's about? No, ever since Adam and Eve decided they wanted knowledge more than they wanted life, and they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, we've been stupid ever since. And uh, can you imagine two people talking, oh, what's your pastor teaching on? Oh, he's doing a series, been over a year on John. How about yours? Oh, he's been doing one for 24 years on Don't Be Stupid. (laughs) But uh, that pretty much sums up what the Word has to tell us. Open your eyes. Uh, See what doesn't appear to the eyes. Don't walk in the stupidity of your own blindness, your own way of doing things, your own feelings, your own thoughts. Quit doing things your own way. Wake up. Move forward. Do things God's way. But anyways, I I went back to my initial title, A Celebration of Victory. You know, when you uh, talk about Sukkot, Sukkot in the scriptures and throughout Judaism is called the feast. It's one of three feasts, but... When someone just talks about the feast, or in the Gospels you see the feast, it's Sukkot, always Sukkot. Because there's no one of the feasts of the holy days that's filled with joy, that's filled with power, that that brings a conclusion to the year like Sukkot does. You know, it's the seventh of the feast. It takes place in the seventh month. It lasts for seven days, and everything about Sukkot is about the conclusion, the goal of God's plan for mankind. Everything about it, if we have eyes to see, we can open our eyes and see that. But you know, (laughs) going from Eden to the new heavens and new earth, we're in the middle here, everything to get from here to here is pain and warfare, struggle, conflict, and just weariness, everything from here to there. This is the way it is. But once a year, we get this reminder that all of this has a goal. It has a goal. It's a wonderful goal. Keep your eyes on the goal. Be diligent, be faithful, be wise, don't be stupid. And because the first thing you'll do when you arrive, the kingdom arrives, and you open your eyes and see it, you'll say, why, would I, why did I whine so much? Why was I so stupid? 
Why couldn't I see what the scriptures were so clearly teaching me about my future, about the future God has for us? But that future never, ever comes without the war first. And what I discovered this week as I was looking at the word Sukkot and passages about Sukkot is that everywhere you see Sukkot mentioned, it's preceded by warfare. I'd never seen that before. There's struggle and warfare. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's spiritual, or a combination of both. But there's always war before there's Sukkot. Feel like you've been through a war the last few weeks? No, Rob and I, we, we talk every night. We sit down and just have a chat. That's my favorite part of the day. And, uh, and just last night, she was saying, you know, I just like, it's been like a, I just have to keep my mind focused. I just always have to remind myself of what's true, what's real. Just, it's just uh, like moving through molasses, you know? Not that I've ever moved through molasses, but I've been told it's a struggle. But uh, it's just this constant, like, resistance and, oh, you know what I mean? And uh, it's like, well, yeah, that's kind of normal. That really is kind of normal, especially coming up to Sukkot. So um, what I want you to do as you sit in your Sukkot or someone else's or just think about Sukkot this week, you know, each of the seven days is accompanied by one of the Ushpazim. That's a word that means guests. And last night through today, the guest is Abraham. And so, today, think about Abraham. You talk about men who had struggles and tests and literal warfare in his life. But he always is moving towards a goal. We're told that he was looking for a city that wasn't in this world, a city that was not built with hands. He was searching for that city. And that kept him going. Tonight, the, the guest is Isaac. Think of the Isaac struggles. Then tomorrow night, it's Jacob. Think of the Jacob struggles. What are the things he go through? And then it goes on to Joseph on night four. And then it goes to Moses and Aaron on five and six. And then to David, King David. Oh, my goodness, the struggles that man had. But he was always focused on the goal. He'd get distracted, but he'd get right back on the tracks, get back on target. Then the eighth day, Shemini Zeret, that eighth day of Sukkot, of the seven-day festival, who do we think of? Yeshua, who also for the joy set before him endured the cross. All right? So each night, I just challenge you to think of the, the struggles these individuals had and then learn from their examples because they're, they're for us so we can learn. Now, as we get into this, let's first of all look at the commandments that tell us about Sukkot, what to do, and so we have the foundation what Sukkot is and uh, what to celebrate. So the, instead of putting long passages of Scripture on the screen today, I'm just giving you references. So you're going to be flipping through your Bibles quite a bit this morning, but let's start with Leviticus 23. Uh, I'm going to do verse 34 and then skip over the sacrifices and get to verse 39. It says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, on the 15th of this seventh month, that would be today, is the Feast of Sukkot for seven days to Adonai. And then on to verse 39. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of Adonai for seven days. 
with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. How convenient that the first day falls on Shabbat. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the fruit of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And I just so happen to have those here. Traditionally, the fruit of the beautiful tree is the etrog. And the reason they've chosen this ugly fruit to be the the fruit of the beautiful tree is because the way the Hebrew is worded there, it it, it talks about endurance. And the etrog is unique because it does not have a particular season. It's just on the tree year-round. There's no particular season to it. It's one of those things that just continues to be on the tree 365 days a year until someone comes in and plucks it off. It's also about the size of a human heart, about the size and weight of a human heart. And it's always been seen to represent the human heart. What's also interesting about the e-trog, it has two stems, one at each end. Now, one of them is where it was actually connected to the tree. But the other stem connects to nothing that we can see. So does your heart. Your heart is connected to the physical your heart should also receive nutrients from the spiritual, the unseen realm. So what a perfect fruit to use to represent the heart. But then it also says to take, to take palms. Well, that's what we have here. This is the palm branch in the middle. And then this says the myrtle. The myrtle is this one here, and the, the leaves are shaped like eyes, are perfectly shaped like eyes. And then it talks about taking the, uh, the willows, and these are the willows. The leaves are shaped like lips, as you can see. And, of course, this long, straight palm represents the spine. And then what people do is they take these four species, and they put them together. They hold them together as they pray. And if you have the four species at home, use them, and as you pray, think about, God, where's my heart? Is it connected to you? Is it connected to my family? Is it healthy? Is it strong? How about my spine, my strength? Am I using my strength? Am I fighting the war against my strength to use it for things that don't matter? Am I, am I winning the war to use my strength and dedication to you? And Father, my eyes, help me to win the battle over my eyes because they seem to have a mind of their own and go to look at things that they shouldn't look at. And Father, help me to win the battle of my lips, for Lord, that's where all the problems seem to start. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the lips speak. So, again, give me a healthy heart. Heart, strength, eyes, lips. As we pray, we bundle these together. And we ask, this is where our spiritual war is fought, isn't it? The heart is also a, a, a word that's often a reference to the mind as well. As a man thinks in his heart. We do our thinking in our heart. So, think of the mind, the strength, the lips, the eyes. This is where our battle is being fought. And we pick these up, not just to remind us of the warfare, but also the victories. All of us, though I'm sure we struggle in these four areas, 
As I look out over here and I see people I recognize, I know you've all had victories in these four areas. You're getting stronger and using your strength for the Lord. Your hearts are getting stronger, more sensitive to God and, and to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. And you're winning the battle of the lips. Gossip never seems to be an issue here at Beth Coon. And I praise you for that and I thank God for it. So, you're, you're, you're doing a good job. Celebrate those victories. And then next year, you can celebrate even more because you've had more victories in these four areas. All right? So, anyways, let's get back to Leviticus. You take these four things. And by the way, that one, the boughs of the leafy trees, that, I want you to remember a word here. Um, I guess I should write these down. You, you have the etrog, that's the fruit which represents the heart. And you have the palm branches, which represents the strength, the spine. The foliage of leafy trees, that word leafy is an unusual word. It's the word avot. Now, the word avot means fathers, like perkeavot, the saints of the fathers. But this is spelled different. Pronounced the exact same way, but it's spelled different. It starts with an ayin instead of an aleph. And it means leafy, but it also means plated or to be braided together. It's a very unusual word. But you just remember that word, avot. Can you remember that word? We're going to see it later on in a place you don't expect it. So the foliage of the leafy trees, this represents the, um, the eyes. And then the willows represents the lips. All right, those are the four species. And then it continues on. It says, you get these four things, and you shall be joyful before Adonai your God for seven days. I like that, a commandment to be joyful for seven days. Think you could fulfill that one? How many have already failed? <laughs> you were, were about 12 hours into Sukkot. How many have already bombed? <laughs> right? Okay, this is your second chance. From now and for the, the rest of the week, be joyful. Be joyful. That's our commandment. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to Adonai for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in Sukkot for seven days. Sukkot means booths or whatever. All the native born in Israel shall live in Sukkot so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in Sukkot when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am Adonai, your God. Sukkot, basically, though they say tabernacles, it just means huts, sheds, lean-tos, tents, maybe. Something that's kind of tenuous, something not permanent, something that's not going to endure, but that's what we live in. Now, the good news is, living in these is a commandment for people in Israel, where this time of year, it's very nice. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. And then the rainy season begins in about another week or so. Outside of Israel, like in Ohio, or as a, um, a Messianic rabbi friend of mine, Izzy Avraham, who does the Holy Language Institute, he lives in Saskatchewan, Canada. They did Sukkot outside one year, and it was about 15 below zero. He called me, he says, I think we probably have the coldest Sukkot on record. But, uh, so that's a bit extreme. You don't have to do that. But uh, if you can, 
what a wonderful celebration this is. I remember thinking years ago, I could just study it. I don't need to do it. You ever had that thought go through your mind? I'll just study the commandment. I don't have to do it. But God kept convicting me. You're going to teach this stuff. You're going to lead this congregation. You need to do it. So I remember, I couldn't tell you how many years ago it was. The neighbors were all looking at us, kind of funny, building this sukkah, you know, behind the house. And, and then that first night, family went out there to sit, have a bite to eat. The moon's always a full moon, the first night of sukkah. And sitting out there under the moon and the stars, and we had little twinkle lights and the decorations, it was like entering a different world altogether. It was the most surreal, wonderful thing. It was almost stepping into a fairy tale. I'll never forget that feeling. And I still get it today, on that first night of Sukkot especially. Stepping out of this world and the world to come. That's what it's all about. Unless you do it, you'll never know what I'm talking about. Studying it just doesn't cut the mustard, as we say. And then we have the second passage, which is in Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 to 16. You shall celebrate the feast of Sukkot seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat, and you shall be joyful in your feast. And then it tells us who's to do it. You, your son, your daughter, your male and female servants. These are the workers. And the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. These are the non-workers. In other words, whether you invested in this harvest or not, you all come together. You all rejoice in the Lord for seven days. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to Adonai your God in the place which Adonai chooses. Because Adonai your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands. What is the place that God has chosen? He hadn't revealed it back here when Moses spoke these words in Deuteronomy. But what is the place on earth that God has chosen to record his name? It's Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, where the, the temple stood. That is the place he has chosen. And so as we go on, it says, so that you'll be altogether joyful. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before Adonai your God in the place which he chooses. At, number one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Barley Harvest. That's in the spring. And at the Feast of Weeks. That's seven weeks later, plus a day. That's Shavuot, Pentecost. They come to Jerusalem again. And at number three, the Feast of Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before Adonai empty-handed. When you read through the Gospels, especially John's Gospel, it sometimes refers to the Feast of the Jews or the Passover of the Jews. Making it sound like these are Jewish holidays and not God's holidays. What you have to understand is when John uses the term Jews, he's talking about Judea. So when he refers to a feast of Judea, it's one of these three pilgrimage feasts where wherever you lived in Israel, you went to Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. All right? And uh, so it can be very confusing if you're not aware of that. In fact, all of John 7, and we think maybe 8 and 9, took place at the last Sukkot when Yeshua was alive, knowing that in just a few months, coming around to Passover, he would be dead. 
So when you read those chapters, especially John 7, it talks about the beginning of the feast, and it talks about the middle of the feast, and it talks about the last day, the, uh, the Hashanah Rabbah, the seventh day of the feast. It's very specific. John wants us to attach all of that information in those chapters to the Feast of Sukkot. So those are the commandments. That's what the Word has told us about this feast. And there's so much more to study and to learn about it. But let's look at some examples now, historically, where Sukkot is observed or mentioned, but it always follows war. The first one is Moses in Israel after the plagues. When you read Exodus chapter 12, 7 through 12, you go through nine plagues. So what are these plagues? Each plague God sent was a war against one of the gods of Egypt. They worshiped Ra, the sun god. So God makes it dark for three days. Knock Ra off his pedestal, right? They worship the Nile River. God turns it to blood. Knock the Nile off as a god. No competition. And every single plague is a warfare, spiritual war against one of the gods of Egypt. And then finally, on that Passover night, the firstborn of, of all the people and of the cattle dies. And the next morning, they drive the Jewish people out. Then what happened? Well, in chapter 12, they, they leave Egypt... And it says this, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses, that's in Egypt, to where? To Sukkot. About 600,000 men on foot aside from children. What followed the warfare? A place called Sukkot. By coincidence, of course. But here we find this mention of Sukkot following warfare. Near the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is just hours away from dying. And so he commands Joshua. He gives Joshua specific instructions. So let's look at chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verses 3 through 8. This is what it says. Moses is speaking and he says, It is Adonai your God who will cross ahead of you. Cross the Jordan. They're right there at the Jordan River. He will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you. That's war. And you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as Adonai has spoken. Adonai will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Og. You talk about a big upset. Israel overthrowing these two mighty kings, the guardians on the east of the Jordan. I mean, that was an incredible victory. It says, the kings of the Amorites and to their land, when he destroyed them, Adonai will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for Adonai your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land which Adonai has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. Adonai is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In other words, Joshua, you're heading into war and these people are following. Now look at the very next, next verse, verse 9. 
So Moses wrote this Torah and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Sukkot, when all Israel comes to appear before Adonai your God, the place which he will choose, you shall read this Torah. Now, what is the Torah? Proverbs 3.18 tells us it's a tree of life to all who grasp it, and all its supporters are praiseworthy. Keep that in mind. You shall read this Torah in front of all Israel in their hearing. You know, in Nehemiah, we read about, uh, I think it's in chapter 8, about the people after the walls and the gates are, are set up, and they celebrate Sukkot, and they read the Torah. So, um, again, we see warfare, but in the very next verse, Moses says, now, at Sukkot, every seventh Sukkot, when all of the males are gathered, I want you to read through the entire Torah together in their hearing. Again, warfare, and then Sukkot. Here's number three. Now, the Hallel is this long song made up of Psalms 113 through 118. It's six psalms. And they were sung on several occasions. Whenever there was a really joyful occasion, um, at Passover, the three pilgrimage feasts, at Passover, remember the Gospels tell us, and they sang a song and they went out. I can tell you what the song was. It's the Hallel. Psalms 113 through 118. And then at Shavuot, Pentecost, they would sing a song. It'd be the Hallel. And then at Sukkot, they would sing the Hallel. Now, here's the interesting part. If you know anything about the history of Sukkot, you know that each morning, a priest would walk from the Temple Mount, which is way up here, and he'd walk down to uh, the southern part of the Temple Mount from the temple, and then keep walking down to the very southern tip of the city of David. I mean, it's all downhill. That the southern tip is the Pool of Shalom. The Pool of Shalom. This is where Yeshua healed the blind man or told him to go wash in the Pool of Shalom. And he had this, this beautiful, I think it was a golden pitcher. He would dip into the water and there'd be a whole parade of people singing, dancing, playing flutes and shouting and clapping and it was just a party. And all the way they'd be singing the Hallel. And once the, the priest got the pitcher of water, they turned around and started walking uphill all the way to top of the city of David, then up to the, the temple mount, up into the temple, and there he would pour the water out on the corner of the altar. This was a, a, a representation that they were expecting rain, the rainy season. The early rains would start right after the week of Sukkot. Now, they would time it, and they would sing these psalms, sing the Hallel, and they would save Psalm 118, the last of the Hallel, till they got to the temple courtyard, and they would sing it as they went around the altar. Now, let's look at Psalm 118. Let's start in verse 5. And the Hallel is something you might want to work into your Sukkot observance. As you sit in your Sukkah, you can, you can uh, read a, a, one of the Psalms a day and talk about it, discuss it. 
But you start in verse 5 of Psalm 118. It says, from my distress, I called upon Adonai. Adonai answered me and set me in a broad place. Adonai is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Adonai is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me, on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in Adonai than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in Adonai than to trust in princes. And then it goes on to verse 10. All nations surrounded me, and the name of Adonai will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, and the name of Adonai will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. And it goes on to talk about cutting off the enemies and talks about God as his strength and song. And uh, it's just uh, an amazing passage. Um, go down to verse 15. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of Adonai does valiantly. The right hand of Adonai is exalted. The right hand of Adonai does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of Adonai. The Adonai has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. It's all about struggle. It's all about warfare. It's all about the pain. All about wading through the molasses. But then what happens when you get down to verse 19? Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to Adonai. Now this is celebration, isn't it? This is the gate of Adonai. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my Yeshua, my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the Rosh Pinah, the head of the corner, the cornerstone. This is Adonai's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Adonai has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in him. You can translate it in it. It's a masculine word. It can also be as easily translated in him. So you can do it both ways. So this is a day of rejoicing. And then verse 25, we always sing this at uh, our Torah service. Ana Adonai Hoshia na. Ana Adonai Hotzlicha na. This is the Hosanna. Adonai save, we beseech you. Adonai, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Then look at this next verse, uh, rest of verse 26. We have blessed you from the house of Adonai. Then verse 27. Adonai is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Now, the word sacrifice is not there in the Hebrew. Though all your translations include it, it's not there. It's implied because you bind animals. You bind sacrifices the horns of the altar. But it doesn't have the word sacrifice. What it says is, bind the chag, the feast, with avot. Remember that word avot? What does avot mean? Leafy branches. Bind the feast with the leafy branches. This is all Sukkot talk. It's talking about the feast. It's rejoicing. It's talking about avot, which are these right here. 
the ones that look like eyes. It talks about light, because at Sukkot, they would light these enormous menorahs, 85 feet tall, four of them in the courtyard, light up the whole, the whole city of David. And uh, just a, an amazing psalm. But what do we have here? We have warfare followed by Sukkot. Because Psalm 118, this Messianic psalm, was really considered the, the pinnacle of the Sukkot feast when the people would march around the altar, the water be poured out, they'd, be, they'd have their species in their hands and shaking them like wind blowing through the leaves. And they'd be rejoicing. What, what, they say, who has, whoever has not seen the water drawing ceremony and the water pouring ceremony has never seen joy. They say there's nothing on earth that could compare with that. So we see the Sukkot celebration, but in the body of the psalm they sing is preceded by what? Warfare. Let's go on to number four. Yeah, there's that word, by the way, in verse 27. There you see the word avot once again. Go to Zechariah. I keep thinking one of these days, I generally don't do teachings on books of the prophets. I don't know why. I, I think I just feel completely out of my depth. But Zechariah has been kind of pulling at me like a magnet. So maybe we're going to do a study in Zechariah. It may be horrible. But I feel like it's something we need to do. So stay tuned. But number four, the last day's battle for Jerusalem. This is what it says. We're going to go to Zechariah 14. Look at the first three verses. You could read uh, parts before this even. But um, it says, Behold, a day is coming for Adonai when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is definitely warfare. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And it goes on, describes the horror of this this incredible day. It's like the last battle before the kingdom is established. But then you go to verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, any of the survivors of those who attacked Jerusalem, will go up from year to year to worship the king, Adonai of hosts, and to celebrate what? The feast of Sukkot. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Adonai of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up to enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which Adonai smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of Sukkot. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of Sukkot. In other words, when this time of year rolls around, whatever country you're from better be sending its ambassadors and leaders to Jerusalem to celebrate and rejoice at Sukkot, or you don't get no rain. See battle? This is the end of the age. This is the end 
uh, right before God comes to establish his, his kingdom. And there's incredible battle. And there's Sukkot, celebrating the victory. You see a theme here? And I didn't just pick out references to Sukkot that happened to be preceded by battle. I picked out all the references to Sukkot. I'm not leaving any out. And then there's the last battle. That's followed by the new heavens and new earth. If you look at Revelation chapters 19 and 20, you see this incredible battle. This is the end of the thousand-year kingdom. This is at the end. This is a thousand years after the prophecies of Zechariah are fulfilled. Satan is unloosed for a period of time, and there's this horrible war, and and Messiah comes right out of heaven in a cloak dipped in blood, riding a white horse with a sword in his mouth. And there's an entire cavalry riding out of heaven with him to do battle against the beast. Talk about the last battle. That's going to be something to see. So that's described in Revelations 19 and 20 and the judgment that takes place in chapter 20. But in chapter 21, we read about the new heavens and new earth. So I'm just going to turn there and read it to you out of my, my Bible. I love these last two chapters. I remember the first time I read these on my own, just picked up the Bible, I thought, why has no one ever just taught this and read through it to me? It, just, I, it was like a, my mind just lit up. And these two last two chapters have been my focus for my life the last at least 55, six, 50 years at least the last 50 years. And I don't think as a day goes by, I don't think of these last two chapters. Because of Yeshua, who for the joy set before him could endure the cross. These are the two chapters that give me joy. And they provide context for every single struggle I go through, every period of boredom I go through, every period of fatigue I go through. These two chapters are the light at the end of the tunnel for me. And I keep moving towards them. They've encouraged me and inspired me and fed me and strengthened me for a half a century. And it's not slowing down for me. They are as fresh to me today as the day I read them. In fact, they mean more to me. Because every time I look at them, something new comes out of them. But in chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the what? The tabernacle. What's this feast called? Feast of Tabernacles, right? Sukkot. This is written in Greek, so the word there is skene. Skene. You know what skene means? It means skin. Okay, that's a Greek word for skin. And uh, because tents were made of skin. This is the tabernacle. Even though this is something that lasts for eternity, it's named after something that is temporal. Which is, but everything throughout these two chapters is a conundrum. Everything is, is, it's like it can't be. It's like water and fire mixing together. Yet the fire staying hot and glowing, the water still staying wet, but they, they abide together. So the whole two chapters are like that. 
So it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the sukkah of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In other words, it's a time of rejoicing now. There will no longer be any death or no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. In other words, no more struggle, no more warfare, no more pools of molasses to swim through, no more struggle. It's done. The first thing has been passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I make it all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now this jumped off the the page to me because when we read in John chapter 7 and Yeshua has gone to Jerusalem for the feast of Sukkot and the water drawing ceremony is taking place. It tells us there in verse 37 on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. As the priest would take the water and pour it on the, on the altar, here's Yeshua, our high priest, saying, come to me, I'll give you water to drink if you're thirsty. And that is what God is saying here as the new heavens and new earth come into being and the new Jerusalem descends from heaven, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Let's keep going. Verse 7. He who, what? Overcomes. All right? You fought the battle. You fought the good fight. Will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now that is wonderful news. You have to overcome. You see, you can go through just about any battle if you know not only are you going to survive, you're going to win, and you're going to be a better person for it, and the celebration is just ahead. Why is it I think God is, has a sense, well, of course he has a sense of humor. If he didn't, we wouldn't. But he, you ever notice when you're trying to get to a wedding, it's always a struggle to get there? Tire goes flat, you have the wrong directions. I, I remember Rob and I went to a wedding uh, last summer, and uh, everything could have gone, went wrong that could have. And then trying to get the reception, we had the wrong place. There are two places with the same name, and blah, blah, blah. Getting to the reception is always a struggle. I think God's got a little sense of humor. says, yeah, this, this, this is the big wedding feast come. And you have to struggle to get there. It's just part of the deal. You struggle to get to the wedding celebration. Well, so next time you, you're heading to a wedding and you realize you left your wallet at home or left the gift at home or you left your wife at home or whatever it is, and you have to turn around. Okay, this is practice. This is just a little mini a little symbolic gesture to remind you of the big wedding that's coming and the struggle to get to it. But we're going to make it. It's all going to be good. And he'll wipe away the tears. I know I've quoted this. Oh, I almost forgot about this. There's a false Sukkot. And it has to do with, with Jacob. 
This is the first mention of Sukkot in the Bible. I left it for last. Because this thing was a total train wreck. Jacob struggled his whole life. He struggled with his father-in-law Laban for years. And finally he has it out with Laban and they make a covenant. And Jacob goes his way and Laban stays on his side and the two never meet again. One struggle down, two to go. Finally, they cross the river Jabbok. He sends his family across. He hears, oh, by the way, your brother Esau, your twin brother who swore to kill you, to murder you, the brother who hates you, remember him? He's on his way here. And he's got 400 men on horseback coming with him. So in Jacob's mind, well, the only thing that could be, he's coming to kill me. So he splits up his, his belongings, his family, into two camps, and, and he sends them ahead to appease Esau, and he's left alone by the, by the brook, and what happens? He gets jumped into the middle of the night. Another battle. A wrestling match this time. And who else could it be? It has to be Esau. Esau is the only one who's got him in his sights to kill him. And so they wrestle all night long. And, and, and Jacob knew, you know, my brother wants to kill me. I do not want to kill him. So how do I keep him from killing me without having to kill him all night long? Can you imagine that? But then when the sun starts to come up, Jacob gets a good look at his, his opponent and realizes, well, that's not Esau. He realizes it's God. Now, if that doesn't fit in your theology, you need to stretch your theology. Because God puts Jacob's hip out of joint. He's in pain. Now he's weakened. And he tells Jacob, let me go. Jacob says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I guess he figured he'd earned it wrestling with God all night. So God says, well, what's your name? He says, it's Jacob. He says, not anymore. It's Israel. Israel, straight to God or prince of God. It could be translated either way. Then Jacob says, well, what's your name? He says, you don't need to ask what my name is. So the opponent disappears. And what did Jacob that name that place? Peniel, the face of God. Because I've seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved, is what he said. Another battle. But then Esau arrives. Okay, well, what's really going to happen now? Well, you know, this is the cool thing. When you've wrestled with God and won... Esau, small potatoes. There was no fear. And after God had wrestled with Jacob and broken him and dealt with him, when Esau sees him, they embrace. The twin who had sworn to kill me now is embracing me, and they're weeping on one another's necks. What a scene. So, battle of Laban, battle with God, and then the the, the the anticipated battle with Esau. They're all, they're all good. And so what does Jacob do? Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built for himself a house and made Sukkot for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. What a train wreck that was. Because he wasn't supposed to go there. He was supposed to go back to his father Isaac. So here's the wrestling match. Here's the encounter with, with Esau and he was supposed to go south down to Hebron where Isaac, his father, lived. Instead, he went north to Sukkot. Here's the problem when you try to make your own celebration for your own victories 
instead of celebrating God's way. You go through a struggle, you think, oh, I need some me time now. This is the time I'm going to kick back and just ah, take a breath and step back. I'm going to take a break from church. I'm going to take a break from Beth the Coon. I just need ah, some recovery time. And it's always a disaster. Because what happened in Sukkot? Jacob's daughter, Dina, gets raped. Her brothers are angry. They go in to the town of Shechem, Shechem. And they kill all the men. Just wipe it out. This was, everybody was wrong. Not one person was right in this. Jacob was wrong. Simeon and Levi, his sons who murdered the inhabitants of Shechem were wrong. Dina was wrong. They were all wrong. This is what happens when you make a false Sukkot. When you start celebrating in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong way. And you know, you have a hint right here in the verse. He journeyed to Sukkot. It's going to get its name Sukkot in just a second. And built for himself a house. He made a house for himself. And, but he made the huts, the Sukkot, for his what? His livestock. You don't make Sukkot for your livestock. Sukkot's a celebration for you. So he called the place Sukkot. You think if he built a house, he called the place house. He's celebrating what he did for his cattle. The emphasis is completely wrong. The emphasis isn't on praise of God, what he has done, though he had plenty of reason to celebrate that. But he had one more battle he hadn't fought yet. He had to go down and fight the battle with his father Isaac because he had deceived his father Isaac to get the the, uh, blessing. He owed his father Isaac an apology. He's made things right with Laban. He's made things right with God. He's made things right with Esau. But he has to make things right with his father, and he didn't do that. I think he's more afraid of that than the first three. And so he made a false sukkah. Get it? Don't do that. It's a train wreck every time. We need to celebrate in God's way at his time, at his place. We need to do it, make sure it's a celebration of God, not a celebration of cattle. And you know, I just feel led to share this. You know, we got this election right around the corner. And if Biden wins, there'll be people celebrating in the streets. And if uh, Trump wins, people will be celebrating in the streets. But for us as believers, shame on us if we're putting our hope in either one of those guys. I'm going to vote. I have an opinion in this. But my hope is not on either one of those guys. God forbid. I believe God can use whoever he wants. I hope he does. But my hope is in the Lord. Be careful if you're starting to put your hope and your joy in your candidate winning the election. That's not what we do. It's okay to be happy, but that's not where our hope is. That is not where our hope is. And if your candidate loses, shame on you if you're miserable. Neither of those guys is the Messiah. Far from it. We have a king. We're citizens of another nation. 
In many ways, we are all illegal aliens in this country because we belong to another nation. You may have a passport, you may be a citizen, but that's the nation, that's the country, and that's my king that I belong to. My hope's in him. Because whoever gets elected, they're just human, and they're going to make goofs and mistakes, and we'll all suffer for it. That's the way it's going to be. All right? Can we as believers just covenant that we're not going to put our hope in one of these candidates? All right? Can we do that? I don't see many heads nodding. Maybe I'm the only guy. But, uh, but that's just kind of how I look at it. And I, I think you know in your heart that's right. So, Hebrews 12.2. What are we to do? Fixing our eyes on who? Trump? Biden? How about Yeshua? The author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He fought his battle for us because he had his focus on the joy, on the celebration ahead. We have to live the same way. If we're going to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him, we have to have have the same focus he did. Set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And you know, a little bit further on, this is chapter 12, you go into the next chapter. Chapter 13, verse 12 and 13. Therefore Yeshua also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate. What do we do at Sukkot? We get ourselves out of the house. You know, we all crave a home. Every human being craves a home. And there's no place like home. That's true. Robin and I sometimes go away just so we can enjoy coming back home. And every time we come back from vacation, Rob and I at first, one of us will say at first, ah, so good to be home. As wonderful as the vacation is, I crave my home. You crave your home? It's not here. Seven days of Sukkot is good practice for getting outside this temporary house. That Sukkot you sit out inside of where the rain comes through and if you you hit it hard enough, it's going to fall over. It's just a shed. That's a picture of what your real house here on earth is. Maybe it's brick or stone, but it's just temporary. It doesn't really provide you any protection to speak of. We have a home. No thieves, no rust, no moths. Everything's safe. Everything's taken care of. And that's our home. And Sukkot is a time to recognize that, to celebrate it, and to embrace it. To remind ourselves what's real and not be stupid. Got it? So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. That's good news. You know, at the first holy day there at... uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, we get the leaven out of the house. Leaven's a picture of sin, always a picture of sin. And maybe you've had victory over sin, and you've been, you realize you've been forgiven of your sins, and it's like, oh, Lord, I feel so free. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. He says, oh, there's one more thing we need to get out of the house. That's you. You need to get your ego out of the house. You need to get rid of self. 
Sin is half the battle, but getting over yourself is the other half. So, is a good idea just to get over yourself. I realize sin doesn't belong to my life, but my life doesn't belong to this world either. So my sin's cast out of the bottom of the sea, but I'm putting myself outside and look up to the stars, look up to who my God is. And that's the other thing you might need to do if you really want to discover the joy that's ours during this season of our joy that Sukkot's called the feast. What a wonderful, wonderful week we're, we're beginning. I'm glad where this teaching's taking place on the first day. So you can think about these things and really celebrate this feast for the rest of the week. I, I, I see a hand up, but I'm not going to take any questions or comments this morning. I'm sorry, uh, because I don't want to keep you over too late. Um, and Rob is going to be coming up to uh, provide some important information. So Rob, while you come, I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. And then we'll shut down the, the, uh, the live stream. Our Father and King, Lord, we, we rejoice today in the fact that we have a king, and that king is you. The king who is our creator, and you're our father, and you've sent our elder brother, Yeshua, to rescue us, to give his life for us. Lord, how we are so loved. So, Father, help us not to be so distracted by the stuff of this world. This world's not permanent. It's a place of warfare. It's a battlefield. But, Lord, even though it's a battlefield, we can still fight our wars with joy deep in our hearts, and we thank you for that. Because there's a great celebration around the corner for every one of us. Whether we live to see you come and establish your kingdom, or whether we leave to go to you first, in either case, it's joy. Joy, fullness of joy. Thank you for the security we have in our great Redeemer and in you, our great God. We praise you for this season of our joy, this feast of Sukkot, in Yeshua's precious name. Amen.